you could hear me whispering. I'm not used to be uh, having a microphone walk around with me. strives to do, but we haven't always maximized the potential of brethren within the church, and uh, and I'm seeing that here, which is which is really really fine. I have um, been doing a well, it's going to end up being a bit of a series on on the um, not just the immortality of the soul, but all the ramifications that uh, are a result of that uh, philosophy. And I remember when we were at the the evangelistic meeting, it must be six weeks ago, a month ago, um, the concept of the immortal soul was one of the things that some of those in the crowd who were new to the church of God had questions about. And one of the key scriptures, and, and actually a key scripture that most of, the people, individuals who consider themselves believers in the Bible will, will use is the scripture on Lazarus and the rich man. They feel that that is a definitive statement on our destiny to either go to heaven or to go to this place of torment that is often referred to as hell. And yet, uh, so much of the scripture defies that reasoning and that mentality and that philosophy. I want to just, in a short brief time, to lay down the groundwork um, of what Scripture tells us about our destiny in terms of the immortality of the soul or the fallacy of that particular teaching. Most of those ideas and philosophies crept into Christianity and even into Judaism um, prior to the time of Christ um, Hellenistic philosophy, Aristotle, Socrates, uh, all of these philosophers had this concept that eventually permeated the Christian church. But scripture from the very beginning uh, defies that mentality. In fact, that particular teaching is so blasphemous because of the consequences of what it, it, it the, the, um, the, the ramifications of it that, in fact, um, it may be one of the most wonderful truth, bits of truth that we in the church have, is this understanding that the soul is not immortal, that you do not go to this place of eternal torment, as many believe. It's interesting, as I've talked to others of different faiths, how they will justify that. They'll use the term, yes, God is a merciful God, yes, God is a God of love, and yet... The, the the justification comes with saying that, but God is also a just God. God is a just God, so he cannot allow these sins to go unpunished. From a human point of view alone, I don't think any of us could ever understand that as being just. If a person lived a life of sin 
and then died. And then God will put them in a place of torment for not a thousand years, not a million years, not a billion years, not a trillion years, but an unlimited number of years. To think that that is justice does not sit well with even the, the, the human reasoning. Now, I don't, want to res- I don't want to stand on human reasoning. I want to stand on the word of God. But just human reasoning alone would say that that is not just. And we, being so far less merciful than God, um, to, to think that, that the righteous, merciful, kind, loving, benevolent God would, would perpetrate such a heinous act as this is blasphemous against the name of God. In Genesis 2 and verse 7, I'm going to go through a few scriptures quickly here. It says that, let's just turn there. I'm going to go through some of these scriptures um, fairly rapidly. Genesis 2 and verse 7. The Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's the new King James, but the King James says became a living soul. The word is nephesh there. So the man didn't have a living soul. He became a living soul. God fashioned him into the shape of a man, and then he breathed into him, and then he became a living soul. That living soul does not mean that that person has now eternal, has his eternal life. In fact, in the very next chapter, God has already warned man that should he eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die. There is the promise. There is the, there is, there is the warning given to mankind and to Adam particularly. And then along comes Satan in, in, ver- in chapter 3. And what does Satan do? He basically says, God's a liar. Don't trust God. Trust me. Oh, God, God has ulterior motives. He wants, to, he wants to deprive you of certain good things. And you should eat of this tree, is in a nutshell is what he's saying. And he says, you shall not surely die. And that's in Genesis 3, verses 19. I'm sorry, that's not, uh, let me go back here a little bit. Verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. And then let's go to verse 19. And and then he goes on to say here that in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. This is the consequence of dying. You will return to the ground and out of it you were taken for dust you are and to dust you shall return. There it is in a nutshell. Those are are verses that um, are often read at funerals. From dust you are and from dust you shall return. That's the consequence of the consummation or the fulfillment of, of physical life. In, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, turn with me there briefly. Ecclesiastes, I'm just going to go through a number of scriptures here. I know I can't spend too much time doing this, and I know you know this. But it does, it does us well to be reminded of this very, very important doctrine that we've come to believe as a result of our understanding of Scripture and as a result of the revelation of that we, we have in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 12, in verse 7. 
then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. What is this thing, spirit? This is a this this is another scripture sometimes used in Christianity to indicate that when the person dies, they this spirit essence of that uh, that they have. Uh, a consciousness that they have returns to God. So in other words, they're going to heaven. And the reality is that that spirit is the life that God has given us. And when we die, it returns to God. It's not a level of consciousness because we read in various in other places like, like Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5. It says here in, in verse 5, For the living know that they, that they will die, but the dead know nothing. For they have no more, they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten, and their love and their hatred and their envy have now perished. In other words, once they die, there's no level of consciousness, there's no emotions, there's no love, there's no hate, there's nothing there. Nothing beyond life as sometimes is espoused by Christianity. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes. I think this is a marvelous scripture. Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. There are two scriptures in Ezekiel that say similar things. One is in chapter 33. But I'll just, uh, but I'll just turn to Ezekiel 18. You can cross-reference that chapter in 33 if you'd like. Basically the same principle. In verse 20. Of Ezekiel 18. It's talking about accountability here, and the, the whole chapter is talking about accountability. The soul that sins shall die. The son. Now that's a definitive statement. The soul, that is the uh, 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 a living being, not this immortal spirit essence that sometimes people equate to the word soul, but the Nephesh, the soul, the individual that sins shall die. That's a definitive statement. And the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. We're talking about life and death. We're not talking about different degrees of immortality or different places, a different place in the universe where you're going to spend immortality. It's talking about life and death. None of the transgressions we, which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. And this is a, this is a beautiful statement. For those who think that God would put another human being or a human being or millions of human beings in a place of torment for eternity, when we read this statement, it defies that mentality. Do I have pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And in Ezekiel 33, it says, turn from your ways. Turn, it says, turn, turn, turn. It's a very emphatic, turn from your ways. God wants us to live. God wants us to repent. And he takes no consolation. There's no pleasure in God seeing someone die, 
even to die, even when you put somebody out of their misery, when you take a dog who is sick, or maybe has rabies or whatever it is, and you have to put that dog down, it is a hard thing to do. It's the only thing to do, but it's a hard thing to do. God will have to put people to death because of the rebellion, because of what they will create in, in, in the world tomorrow. We cannot, have a, we cannot have a harmonious, peaceful world tomorrow if we have people that are constantly rebellious, constantly sinning. That is impossible. And if they refuse, if they absolutely rebel and refuse to repent, there's only one outcome, and that's death. And God says even that is hard for God to do. Even to mercifully put the person down. Can you imagine what it would be like for God, the sensitive, loving God, to be aware of uh, uh, thousands or millions of people who are in constant torment? God could. God is a loving God. He would not be able to withstand the. It would be personal torture to, to God Himself to watch people in, in torment. It's just absolutely impossible to conceive of a loving God, a merciful God, being able to go about his merry way and enjoy the product of his creation when a part of that is there continuously in torment. It just does not make any sense. It just it, it, re, it reflects on the very nature and the character of God, and that's why I say it's a blasphemous teaching because, in fact, um, God would would have none of that, as I'm sure you would know. I won't go to the scriptures, but you can read scriptures like um, Lisa was talking about David. But in 1 Kings 2 and 10, it says, David slept with his fathers. In 1 Kings 11:43, it says, so Solomon slept with his fathers. You can read about Manasseh, the most wicked king of all, slept with his fathers. Are they all in the same place? Yes, they are. They're all in the grave, all waiting for a resurrection, all waiting for a judgment to take place, whether you're righteous or whether you're unrighteous. Uh, Caitlin read the scripture in, in John 3.16. Uh, it says, none has ascended into heaven. Do not people not understand what that means? None has ascended into heaven except the Son of God. What does that mean? It means that no one has gone up into heaven yet. David's not into heaven. None of these kings, Solomon or, or, or David or Manasseh, none of them have any existence except that they sleep in the ground at this point in time. And they await a resurrection. And that's what uh, Job talked about in Job 14 in verse 10. Let's turn there briefly. Job 14 in verse 10. Sleep. We know what sleep means. The Bible talks of sleep as the state of the dead. We see that in many places. It's a state of, it's a temporary state. Here we go. Job 14 and verse 10. But when a man dies and is laid away, indeed he breathes his last. And where is he? As the water disappeared from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so a, man die, so a man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake. Again, this state of unconsciousness. Nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in, my, in, in the grave. Job was in such distress from his 
various trials and difficulties, losing his family, his health, and basically everything he had, that he was asking God, let me rest in the grave. Let me lose my consciousness so I don't have to suffer anymore. That you would conceal me until your wrath is past. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. He's talking about a resurrection here. If a man dies, this is a rhetorical question, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. So Job recognized the concept of death and this state of sleep was well known to the patriarchs of old. And they knew that if once they were in the grave, there was still hope because of the promise of the resurrection, which of course is only made possible through the sacrifice of, of the Messiah. Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4.13 I'll get to uh, Lazarus and the rich man in a minute. First Thessalonians 4. But do not but I do not want you to be ignorant. Brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, again this state of unconsciousness, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There are those who believe that once you die, that's, that's it. There is nothing else to look forward to. There was a state of unconsciousness. So there's, there are those who are non-believers who believe in nothingness after dying. And we have those who are believers who are misinformed and believe in some kind of eternity for either the sinners or the righteous. For those who have been forgiven and those who have refused to repent. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And I won't continue there. You can do that on your own. So this place of perpetual torment is obviously not scriptural. There's nothing scriptural about it. But what about Lazarus and the rich man? That's what one person said to me at that, at that meeting that we had evangelical meeting he says what about Lazarus and the rich man and so I sat down with him for for a moment or two and I tried to explain to him as I understood that particular portion of scripture and I think I passed on to him a reasonable explanation but as I looked into it because it did it did prompt me to look into this particular scripture um, more carefully this portion of scripture I found there's a lot more to this part of Scripture that we can learn from. A lot more we can learn from it. And I hope as we go through this, you may know all of these things, but I hope as we go through this that um, I can share with you a few things that I learned myself in regards to um, the rich man and Lazarus. Turn with me to Luke, to Luke uh, 16. I want to just lay a little bit of groundwork here on, on the book of Luke, the commonly called the Gospel of Luke. I, I love, I love the, that, that Gospel book. I don't know why I just gravitate to it, and now I do, because I've done a little bit of research on Luke. Luke was a physician, and, and I know I'm in the healthcare field, and that's not necessarily the reason why. But Luke was a very caring and, and uh, um, tender-hearted individual, but he was also a Gentile. 
And his, his, both the fact that he was a Gentile, which Gentiles were the outcast of the Jewish society. They were referred to as dogs most of the time. And, but Luke always takes the position of the underdog or takes the side of the underdog. When you read through Luke, you see a lot of scriptures that support, um, the mentality that he, t- you know, each of the gospel writers writes from a perspective. They each give us a facet of what Jesus was trying to teach. But they all give us a little different concept or a little, little, little different perspective. And Luke, Luke's perspective was that, and he, he saw things that Jesus taught. And he, he, of course, he's, he saved them for us to read. But you don't, you don't have any of the other gospels talking about the Good Samaritan, who was you know, cross between a Gentile and a Jew, and they were they were also were an outcast. But you have this story about the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and and um, and these self righteous religious individuals who just walk right on by this man that's been hurt. But who stops? But the Good Samaritan, and all, a lot of the stories that Luke talks about are very much like that. You have uh, the Mary Magdalene who um, wipes the feet of the of, of Jesus. That's not recorded there. You have the story of Lazarus and the rich man, not recorded in any other Gospels. And you could go on, and, and you can see that Luke is very sensitive to those who we would consider the underdogs. He's an underdog man. He, he likes to take care, and he does that. He, does, he, he says a lot about women, too. He's very sensitive to um, the fact that women in society were also considered the underdogs, and oftentimes mistreated. I think, I forget what um, the exact wording of this, but um, one of the Jewish prayers is that I, pr- I thank you, God, that I'm not a, I'm not a Gentile, um, that I'm not a servant, and that I'm not a woman. Um, that's my paraphrasing. Um, so you can see the mentality that's there, this disdain and this contempt and this self-righteousness that comes out. And, and a lot of the religious leaders that we see, not all of them. There were Gamaliel, there were others uh, who, who went to, to Jesus who were really humble. We can't just paint everybody with the same brush. But the reality was that there was a general mentality there. And that was that permeated not only the religious leaders, but, but the Jewish society in general. I'm going to read through. So with that background, I'm going to read through Lazarus and the rich man. And... Before I, I go down there, let's just read in verse 14 of that same chapter, Luke 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. They looked down on him. They ridiculed him. They, they, they uh, um, brushed him aside as, as being unimportant. Um, they ridiculed him, referring to Jesus. In verse 19, and there seems to be, there's, there's a number of things that are said between that verse and verse 19, but I think there's a connection between the two. In verse 19, it says, there was a certain rich man. And whenever it begins, there was a certain so-and-so or a certain man or a certain woman, almost always it's conclusive that that's a parable. So we need to understand from the onset that this is a parable. If you go back to verse 1 of verse six, or chapter 16, it says, He said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man and who had a steward. Same phraseology. It's telling us, Jesus is telling us, that he's giving us a principle here, but it's framed within a parable. And he wants us to understand that. 
There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by an angel to Abraham's bosom. People equate that going to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, people equate that to going to hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am, in, I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and, la- and likewise Lazarus received evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who pass... Who, who those who from here, from there rather, pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, the rich man says to Father Abraham, that you would send him to my house, my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to, said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So that's that particular parable um, concluded. And I want to go through this, unpack it a little bit, so we get a little bit of better understanding of what this parable is all about. So, who is this rich man? Well, I've, I've alluded to that. The rich man is the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees that um, have derided Jesus Christ. And it can extend beyond that. They can represent, the Pharisees can represent Judaism in general. And although... One could look at this as being very specific for the self-righteous Pharisees. There's a good possibility here that because of Luke's background that he's talking about Gentiles versus Judah, Jews here. And it talks about the, this rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. That is that this particular society was gifted in ways that no other society had. These were God's people. They were blessed. They were rich. They were given things that no other society had been given. They were going to be God's people, an example to, the, to humanity. And the typology would represent that here. We're not just talking about physically rich and wealthy, although that is a lesson here. That's part of the lesson. But it goes beyond that. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now, quite often... Um, Parables, most often, maybe always, except for this, this may be the exception. I don't know that for certain, but this is generally an exceptional rule. A name is mentioned. It's unusual for a name to be mentioned in a parable. Lazarus is mentioned here. And who is this Lazarus? Well, he's the poor man at the gate. And as I, as I said, he generally represents 
Gentile community. But it has more meaning than that. If you, if Lazarus has a meaning in the sense that it relates back to someone else in the Old Testament. And that is in, in Genesis. I'll, I'll just give you the scripture. We don't need to go there. Genesis 15:2. And you say, I, I don't read the word Lazarus in there at all. But the word Lazarus is the Greek name. The Hebrew counterpart of that is Eliezer. Eliezer. And Eliezer was Abraham's chief servant. And Abraham in, in, in Genesis 15:2 is praying to God saying that if you don't give me an heir, Eliezer, my faithful servant, a Gentile, a Gentile, is going to inherit everything that I have. But eventually, of course, God does give him that, that seed that would become the father of many nations, very prosperous, the one that would be rich, even as we read here, that, that represents the rich man. But here's this Eliezer, this individual who is the faithful servant of Abraham, and this whole story revolves around that mentality of the Jewish community that I am of Abraham's seed. That makes me special. It makes me somewhat... Um, uh, it, make, it, it kind of... It, it takes away... It gives me a privilege that no other one has to the point that I can rest my credibility, not just my credibility, I can rest my my future um, expectations on the fact that I'm Abraham's seed. I'm just going to turn to a scripture. Turn with me to... I uh, just don't know if this is going to do the job here, but okay. John 8. John 8, verses 8, 39. Let's go there. John 8 and verse 39. Because we see this over and over and over again in scripture. They constantly made the claim that they were Abraham's seed. In verse 39, and really we have a denunciation of the, uh, here by, by, by Christ. But anyway, I speak what I have seen with, with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's child, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. And he goes on to show them that if they were really Abraham's seed, if they really followed what Abraham taught and lived the life that Abraham lived, in fact, they would have accepted Jesus Christ and they would not have um, condemned Jesus and, and derided him as they, as they do. And they, they, they go on as far as to say that, well, we're not of, we're not of the of fornication. We, we have one father and that's our father, God. That's what these religious, hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees were saying to Jesus. But they always rested on the, the fact that they were Abraham's seed. And now we have in this parable in, in Luke um, this mentality here that gets stripped away. Gets stripped away because we know that, it, in fact, we read that back in, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18, has nothing to do with what my father did or my previous father, or my previous father, or what Abraham did. I can't, I can no way claim the faith of Abraham to somehow justify my position as a Christian. I'm judged for who I am. God is, impart, God, God is an impartial God. He's used Israel as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, hopefully, his intention was, as an example of the rest of society. And they failed, they failed uh, dramatically, and uh, eventually ended up going into captivity.
But part of this is tied into all of what this parable is, is mean, it means here. And so we have this uh, Lazarus, this Eliezer, who was Abraham's, and that, at that time was Abram's, um, chief servant who was a, who was a, uh, a Gentile. And then it goes on to say, And a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And that, in some ways, we could go to several scriptures. Uh, but I, I think I will just turn to uh, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 26. Keep your finger in Luke. Matthew Matthew 15, I'm sorry. Matthew 15, verse 26. If I said five, I was wrong. Matthew 15 and verse 26. Here is a little story. This Matthew, on the other hand, in, in uh, contrast to Luke, is a devout Jew. He's a Jew through and through. And he looks through the eyes of, uh, of a Jewish um, individual. And when he write, he remembers things that um, probably Luke would not want to remember. And, uh, and he, in this particular situation, there's this woman that comes to Jesus asking, begging him to, uh, to answer, to, to heal her, her daughter. And, and, and he's, let's begin down here. His disciples said to him, in verse 23, send her away, for she cries out after us. There was no mercy on, on their part. Send her away. Just send her away, because, of course, this is a Gentile. But he answered and said, I was not sent except... Oh, of course, he says to her. Let's read through this story. Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That really rings true with... Uh, with the way uh, Matthew would like to hear Christ speak. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. It sounds so harsh. Doesn't that sound harsh? It doesn't sound like Jesus at all to me. Here's this woman begging him to heal her, uh, her daughter. And he says, he, he says um, that he, he, it's, it's not for him to do that. Um, to take children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Uh, let me just read a commentary on that because it, it clarifies this a little bit. It's People's New Testament commentary. It says, It is not me to take the children's bread. She knew that in comparing the Jews to the children of God's family and the heathen to the, to the dogs without, he simply used the customary language of a Jew he would bring out fully the greatness of her faith and got the gospel was offered first to the Jews and then to all. So in one sense, this was a little test to her. All Christ was doing, in my estimation, and the commentary would kind of support that, is that he was just testing her. He makes this comment, and how does she respond? She responds and she says, True Lord. She doesn't, she doesn't become indignant. She doesn't rebel. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't become offended. She says, true, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. A complete humble response. And then Jesus says and answered and said, O woman, great is your faith. 
he, he gave her the opportunity. He kind of set up the situation, gave her the opportunity, and she chose the right course and humbly came to him, and he responded and healed her daughter. Anyway, they, it's, it's interesting, this whole concept and this mentality that existed within the, the Jewish, within Israel, within the Jewish community, towards those um, who were not sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, this is, I find this particular um, portion of Scripture extremely interesting. So it was, the beggar died and, car- and was carried to a- to, uh, by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and also was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in, in his bosom. So there's a real irony here that here's this, the, this religious community who feel that their credibility or their honor comes for the fact that they're sons of Abraham. And now this Gentile, this beggar, is now, as symbolically speaking, uh, metaphorically speaking, is in Abraham's bosom. And this rich man, who always was laying, who would have been one of the rich religious leaders laying claim to Abraham's um, greatness, is now begging that that this man Lazarus be come and help him. But there's something in here that we don't want to miss. Being in torments in Hades, and people take that to mean that um, this individual, because he hadn't lived a righteous life, was going to be tormented for eternity in Hades. Well, it doesn't say for eternity, but it does say that he was tormented in Hades. Hades is a... Is a um, I, won't, I, don't, I don't want to focus on the word Hades. All I will say in regards to this parable, that was it was framed in the mentality of the Jews of the day. The Jews had accepted Hellenistic philosophy, and Jesus framed this parable using that. Uh, but the word torments here is very interesting, and I will use my reference book here. Um, the word torments, I, I just, I, in doing some research a few years ago for the last day of the feast, the last great day, and I was looking at Revelation 20, and it says where the false prophet and the beast were, and they will be tormented forever and ever, forever and ever. The word torments is the word basanos. It's very interesting. I, I don't know why we haven't use this in in the church of god before it's not my revelation it's this it's there it's it's plain it's in it's in thayer's um biblical dictionary it's in strong's biblical dictionary and one of the dictionaries that i find vine's expository dictionary i find it very this is an excellent dictionary all of them say the same thing and it supports our position and our understanding of the truth under torments there are two words, but basanos is the one that's used here in Luke 16. But there's another word called, well, let me just begin with that word, basanos. It's primarily used as, as the word touchstone. Touchstone. Employed in testing metals. Does anybody know what a touchstone is? Have you ever done, have you ever done research on the word torments? It's amazing. It's an amazing word. The word torments comes from the word, it, it means, it actually means touchstone, but it's translated in, in pretty well all the Bibles as torment or torments. Touchstone was a stone that you would rub a, 
a genuine piece of gold or silver. You would rub it on that stone. And then you would take a, a, a dubious, you, you, it was in question, was this real gold? Was it false gold? And you would rub that stone on, you would rub that metal on that touchstone again. And you would compare. If they were equal, you knew that was genuine gold or genuine silver, precious metal. But if it didn't, you know it, was, it wasn't true. It was false. They used that to identify the pureness of the, met, the metals, whether gold or silver. The word touchstone, of course, the, the other word here that I want to um, look at is bosonissimos, which is another word that is translated torments. Same, base, same root word. Um, it's used of divine judgment. So this word torments means that these individuals, whether it's the beast and the false prophet in Revelation 20, or what uh, Jesus is teaching here in, in Luke 16, is that these individuals will be judged. They will be judged in the stone, that stone which is called the, the uh, basanos, which is the touchstone, the test of whether you're a true Christian or not, is based on what? It's based on the Word of God. It's, it, the word touchstone is, can, can be considered the yardstick, the, me, the measurements, the standard by which you would, um, you would use to judge. That is the standard. And, of course, we have the living Word, which is Jesus Christ, which is, who is a rock. And then there is the written Word, the written Word, both of which are the standard by which we use to judge. The rich man was in torments. And, of course, there's a connection between the word torment, and that's why they use the word torment, is that when you're judged as an individual and all of your sins are brought to light, these are for unrepentant sinners, are brought to light, there is emotional and mental torment. And when we're talking about satanic beings who have been around for millions, I don't know, billions of years, you can bet your life that that judgment period is going to be a long period. So when it says tormented forever and ever, it, if you translate it literally, they will, be, they will be judged by a standard, the Bible, Jesus Christ, for age, from age to age, age-lasting judgment will take place, in which, yes, there will be emotional torment involved in that, because all of their sins will be made public, and, and, and they will be exposed, so to speak. My question, I asked myself this question, you may have asked yourself this question, why does God raise up individuals who are obviously rebellious, who obviously will, he will have to destroy anyway? That question went through my mind. I thought, well, why do that? Why go through that whole process of taking these individuals, putting them to, to, them to the test, comparing them to Jesus Christ, comparing them to the Word of God? Jesus Christ only lived, I mean, he, he was a living Word of God. Why bring them back to life? Why not just let them lay in the grave and that's the end of it? Again, it comes back to the fact that there are certain teachings, and I spoke last time I was here after we were delayed for two hours on the, on the, on the highways. I spoke about the name, the name, the reputation of God. And you know, we in today's society know that no matter how, how, how heinous an individual is, it could be Bernardo, it could be any, any individual who you say, well, why don't you just put the person to death? But there's a process you have to go through, and it's called justice. And God is a just God. In order to exonerate himself and not to be in question, he will present to all of society those particular sins 
and then they will, they will be condemned. They will be, those, that case will be presented against them. A just God will not just condemn you. He will actually bring the case before all of the individuals, and they will be condemned in a way that we will consider justice, because God is a just God for his name's sake. No one will ever be able to accuse God of, of arbitrarily making decisions without actually having a basis for those decisions. He will base his, dis, his decision on the, the exposure of these sins of these individuals. I think that's why God will, will bring them back to life, because, and there will be a judgment, of course. So we, we have this word, basanos, which not, does not talk about an eternal torment, but a, about a judgment day. Then we, have, we, we carry on here. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and coolest, cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. This is the testing. This is the same word, the, the word of Basanos, which means uh, judgment. But Abraham said, son, remember, and he goes on through this whole explanation of that. He had, he had his day and he turned it down and he refused and he turned away from God. And besides this, Besides all this, between us and you, verse 26, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The, the gulf is between those condemned to death and those who are promised eternal life. And there is no passing between the two. There are other explanations to that, but um, certainly that's, one aspect that we can we can take from that, and then he goes on to say, said, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, who the father's house is is the house of Israel, is is, is the house of Judah, for I have five brothers that he may testif- testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, one commentary said this supports um, the concept that we're talking about Judah, because now. Judah had many brothers, not just five brothers, but only five were real brothers. The other ones were ha- the other brothers were half brothers. There were five true blood brothers, and all of his other brothers were half brothers. So they said this is again pointing to the fact that we're referring to Judah here. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that it's interesting. It's an interesting fact, and may support that position. And Abraham said to him, "They have Moses and the prophets." Let them hear. Let them hear them. I'm going to just turn to Romans 2 and verses 1 to 12. Turn with me there for a minute. You can keep your finger here still. Romans 2. Paul is saying, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, verse, verse 1 of Romans 2, who judge, for, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same thing. He's condemning the, in, in many ways, the self-righteous, um, the circumcised, the circumcised, 
because he goes on to say this is within the context of circumcision versus uncircumcision. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God just because you're Abraham's seed? Because just because you're called the people of God, you think that you won't be called into judgment because you live a double standard? Or do you despise the richness of his goodness? Again, this whole concept, the rich man, Lazarus and the rich man, ties in here. Do you despise the richness of his goodness, the forbearance and the long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your in, in, um, impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those by patient continuous in doing good, seek the glory and honor and immortality. That's one option. That's one hope. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey our unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first, also of the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also the Gentile, to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And many as have sinned with, within the law will be judged by the law. Basically, God is saying that just because you're a Jew, don't think you will not suffer the judgment of God if you don't live a godly life. And your option is this. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. Although that's not completely... Um, definitively brought out in this particular scripture. So what are the lessons we learned from all of this? What's, what, is, what are some of the lessons? I know that most parables have one central message. And it would be foolhardy for us to take a, 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 a parable like this and say, okay, it's talking about the Gentiles, it's talking about the Jews... Um, you know, these self-righteous Gentiles who are disdaining, uh, who disdain God and who are living a self-righteous uh, life of, of uh, immorality. Um, and then the Gentile who is being accepted because he, he lives, he, he's, he's, he's repented and, and he's living a righteous life. So we could, we could come away from this with some kind of an, a conclusion that is interesting and historical. But every parable has a personal meaning for each one of us. And, and if we were just to look at this as an interesting comparison between the Gentiles and the Jews, and, and that Christ was condemning the, 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 the Jews in this particular case, or the religious leaders, we'd come away with this not having learned the lesson that Jesus Christ wants us to learn. So there are other lessons, obviously. Uh, we could say, well, we shouldn't be materialistic. We should be caring. The, the, this particular rich man was oblivious completely oblivious to this poor man who was sitting at his doorstep. So we could learn a lesson from that. We, we need to be aware of the needs of society, the poor, the sick, the maimed. And all throughout Scripture, we know that God has, has made us, uh, wants us to be tenderhearted to those who are the underdogs in society. Uh, is, is that the only lesson that can we learn from this? We can learn from this, of course, that there are consequences to sin. That God is an impartial God. That if we live a life of righteousness, 
Obviously, we can't be justified by the life we live, but we can be justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. The scripture that was read, that um, Caitlin read to us, the very scripture that is at the very heart of what most people consider the heart of Christianity, says that, For God so loved the world, that whoever believes in him should not what? Should not end up in eternal torment forever and ever and ever, or should not perish. The Bible says perish. The word is clear. Perish is die. Shall not perish. What is the other option? But shall have eternal life. The other option is, when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will be justified. And if you continue on with a repentant attitude, uh, an attitude of, of, of uh, humility, and an attitude of obedience, then you will ha- be given the gift of eternal life. Romans, Romans 6 and 23. I think that's the scripture I'm looking for. The wages of sin is what? Eternal life and eternal torment. Isn't that what it says? The wages of sin is death. Time and time again, we know what the consequences of sin. It's death. And this parable that Jesus Christ uses, and, and, and he, and he, um, he um, puts it within the context of the, the, the philosophy that's crept into the Judaism to teach a lesson, um, does not tell us that when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. It has nothing to do with that. It tells us that God's a compassionate God, but there are consequences and we'll be held accountable for our own sins. And that if we don't repent, the consequences will be, will be very dire indeed. And I guess that scripture in John 3.16 ultimately is that the only way to eternal life is, is through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Philippians 1 and verse 6. In conclusion, Philippians 1 and verse 6. If, if the book of Luke is my favorite gospel, the uh, book of Philippians is my favorite uh, is my favorite letter that Paul writes. Philippians 1 and verse 6. So in spite of all the things that we, you know, the dire consequences of, of sin, and, and we need to be aware of that, it says here, being confident, Paul says to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ.